All right, good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. Uh, good to see you braving the cold. I was remembering the summer, and I couldn't, I couldn't even remember exactly how it felt when it was 100 degrees. I'm kind of like the uh, Israelites. I'm in the wilderness, but I'm longing for the desert of Egypt, 110 degrees. and go swimming back then. Anyway, um, welcome to Zoe Community Church. For real, it's, it's good to see you. I know it's not easy to, to brave the weather, so I'm encouraged, and hopefully everyone makes it back home okay. Um, we're in Ecclesiastes, and we've been going through Ecclesiastes for a while. We're almost done. We're in Ecclesiastes 9, so why don't you turn there, and let's get started. Ecclesiastes 9. We've, uh, we've been calling the series East of Eden. We've been talking about what it means to live life East of Eden. Okay. Outside of paradise, after the fall, life under the sun is difficult. It's toil. It's, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes calls it, hevel. It's vanity. It doesn't last. And we're kind of nearing the home stretch. We're in chapter nine. We're going to finish nine and do chapter 10. Um, but as you turn there, as you get situated, let's start with the story. Back in September of 1980, so I know not even everyone was born then, uh, but in 1980, a man named Jeff Plum got into his car to go to work in the small town of Damascus, Arkansas. Okay, tiny town, kind of middle of nowhere. He was brand new to the job, and he was actually carpooling with his coworker, David Plum, or David Powell, excuse me, he's Jeff Plum, David Powell, who was also training him. Okay, now, if you're wondering what their job was, these two men were actually maintenance workers at the U.S. nuclear missile silo or facility in Damascus. It was top secret. So what they did was they would get in their car and they would drive out into the ordinary looking woods and there would just be trees. They would go in through this gate and there would just be the slab of concrete on the ground. Okay, you wouldn't really know what it was. It was this huge slab. It looked like something maybe you would build like a basketball court on or something like this. But then you could actually go underneath. And underneath this slab was a 14-story silo housing a Titan II nuclear missile, which at the time in 1980 was the most powerful, most destructive weapon that the U.S. Army had. So they're going to work, and Jeff is training under David. And they do their work during the day and uh, they're, you know, cleaning the missile. They did more than that, but they're working on the missiles, making sure that things don't break down, that there aren't any leaks, that the warhead doesn't accidentally explode because some of the rubber wears down or something like this. And at the end of the day, and it's Friday, so they're itching to get home. At the end of the day, they get one more assignment. Okay, the fuel pressure inside of the rocket that houses the warhead is low. So they basically need to go up and in layman's terms, they need to unscrew the gas cap and put in some more fuel. Okay, that's their job. So they need to get up on these hydraulic lifts, uh, kind of like, you know, window washer outside of a, a skyscraper. You might have seen something like that. That's what you could picture. They're going up 10 stories and they need to refill this gas. Now, the thing is, the Titan II was the most destructive weapon that we had. Uh, its explosive power was three times all of the bombs, including the atomic bombs that were used in World War II that the U.S. used. So one missile, three times as much as every single bomb we dropped in the war to end all wars. Okay, actually that was World War I, but you know how that went. So they're going up and they need to put fuel in, but not only is the warhead dangerous, but the fuel is super dangerous too. So this fuel that they were using, they don't use this kind of fuel anymore from what I read, but it was a particularly volatile kind of liquid fuel which could easily combust. Okay, so it was very dangerous if it got on you. So if it touched rust, it would catch fire. If it touched clothes, it would catch fire. If it touched paper, it would catch fire. And if it got on your skin, it would melt your skin like acid. So they have to kind of put on these suits to go up, but they're trying to do it quick because it's Friday, they want to go home. So they're riding up, and they're halfway up this hydraulic lift when they realize they forgot the tool to take off the gas cap. They left it downstairs, and they'd have to like go down and like go through the blast doors and all these things. So Jeff, he's a new guy at the job. He asked David, what should I, what should we do? Should we go back? And he's like, let's just figure it out, right? It's like almost five o'clock. Let's just figure it out. I have this ratchet. So he had one of these ratchets that you might have at home, except for it's huge. It's three feet long, eight pounds, two people. You need two people to use it. But he's like, I think we could pry off the gas cap with this ratchet. So they get up to the top 
and they attach it and they're on both sides and they actually manage to pop it off. And then they fill up the gas or they start doing it. And then they're not being careful. They drop the ratchet off of the lift. And it's like in slow motion. They can see it dropping down. It drops 70, 80 feet. And then it bounces off the side of the missile. And then they can see gas just shooting out. Okay, it, it knocked a hole in the side of the missile. Skin-melting, combustible rocket fuel was spraying out of the side of this 10-story ICBM, housing the most powerful nuclear weapon that the United States Army had in 1980 in small-town Damascus, Arkansas. All Jeff could remember was David saying, this is not good. This is not good. This is not good. And you know what? He was right. It was not good. And we'll get back to that story in a little bit. But the point is, little mistakes can have potentially huge repercussions. I think we understand this. Right? A careless word spoken here or maybe a uh, three-foot, eight-pound tool dropped there. And you might as well have dropped a bomb. That's how much destruction and damage you can cause. Now, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes brings his book to a close, okay, he's, he's starting to get into the home stretch, like I said, he wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand his points. Okay, you've been here maybe. Maybe this is your first time. If it is, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hopefully you can kind of pick up on where we're at. Um, but we're about a little bit more than three quarters of the way through. He wants to make sure that we're not misunderstanding his argument. Okay, because if you've been with us, you know, he's been saying stuff like everything is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity. So we might think, okay, so nothing I do really matters. We've talked about how God is in control. What happens is what God wants to happen. So ultimately, life isn't in your hands. So you might be thinking, okay, so nothing I do really matters. We talked about how we will all die eventually and be forgotten eventually. So you might be thinking, nothing I do really matters. I'm called to enjoy life, whatever comes. So nothing I do really matters. Now, the truth is life is short. Every single person here will die. God is in control. We should enjoy the life that God has given us as a gift. Even if it's a vain life, it's still a gift from God. But make no mistake, even though all these things are true, it doesn't mean just do whatever. Okay, it doesn't mean who cares. It doesn't mean live by impulse, whatever you feel like, whatever feels good. Oh, well, you only live once, so might as well indulge in whatever fleshly desire I have today. That's not it. The point of Ecclesiastes that he's building to is to not waste the life or not waste the gift, excuse me, that is your life. Don't waste the gift that God has given you that is your one life to live. See, we're supposed to recognize that there is still good and there is still bad under the sun. There is still design to the creation. And there are rules to how the creator set everything up. And this means that when it comes to living a good life, not wasting your life, making the most of your life. Wisdom is the name of the game. Okay, wisdom is the one thing that can help you to take hold of this life and not squander it. And as the preacher starts to close the book, he wants to drive his main points home. And this is what he focuses on in our passage. He's already talked about wisdom, kind of the limits of it, but also the blessings of it. Here he wants to drive his point home, kind of looking at it from the opposite way. Okay, he's already told us, be wise, and we're like, yeah, 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 I got it. Here he wants to tell us, don't be foolish. See, wisdom can help you live a good life, but nothing can ruin your life like folly. Little mistakes, huge repercussions. Now, our text is pretty long today, so we'll read it as we get along. Um, but let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Let me pray for our time. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and maybe we've forgotten it. Maybe we haven't thought about it at all. Even though we're here at church, even though we've been singing songs about you and to you, even though we are sitting with Bibles open in our laps, maybe it hasn't occurred to us, God, that we are here for you, that you are the creator, that you are God and we are not. And the fact that we are here, the fact that we are living it's a gift from you. It's grace. The fact that we can worship you, the fact that we can pray to you now as your children and call you our father, that even though you are worthy to be feared, God, and we do fear you, we also know that you love us, God, and your perfect love casts out fear. That is grace. 
God, I pray that you would help us then to sit before your word with humility. God, this isn't something that we have to get through. God, this isn't something that we have to have to apply. God, this is really a gift from you, that you would give us wisdom, that you would want us to be able to live our lives to the fullest for your glory and for our good. God, it's a grace that you want us to have joy in life. So God, I pray that with that expectation, God, with humility, we would sit before your word and that we would be changed. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do in us. God, we are so prone to wander as we sing. God, we are prone to folly. But God, I pray that you would make us wise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes, like I said, can be broken down into four parts, basically. Okay, it's not an easy book to break down. It's not super neat, even in breaking down in four parts, but it can basically be broken down into four sections. So the first section is probably the most depressing section. A lot of people don't even get past that section, but it's where the preacher talks about how everything is vanity. It's his argument. Okay, everything is hevel. And the word hevel means like smoke or vapor, something that is here and then is just gone. So he talks about how, you know, the knowledge that we have as human beings, it's hevel. He talks about all the things that feel good. You know, he tried to just enjoy life, build a nice house, uh, have all these relationships, drink his problems away, and ultimately it left him empty. He talks about how he worked and how he dedicated himself to, to doing something meaningful. And even that wasn't meaningful. It was meaningless. It was empty because he knew that ultimately all the money would go away. People would forget what he accomplished. He would die. And then the, the second section, he, he expands on that. He talks about how he got to this point. He's not just a depressed guy. He, he's been carefully observing life. So he talks about how he's been watching the seasons, how he's been watching time go on, and how no matter what you do, you get older. No matter what you do, you can't stop the future from crashing into the present. That's just how it is. He talked about the inevitability of death. He talked about how there are other people around us who influence our lives, sometimes in ways that we don't like and we can't control. In the third section, he starts to break down how this actually works because he's been saying, despite the vanity of life, despite all the things that are outside of our control, we can still enjoy life. In fact, that is what God wants for us to do. He wants for us to enjoy life, to take it as a gift, to not live on our terms, but to live on his. To, as I said last week, to not live as if we're doing God a favor, but as if he's doing us one. So in the third section, he starts talking about, okay, but how does this work in real life with sin and with our own creaturely limitations and, and with death? Now, in the final section, what he's doing is he's trying to give us some practical takeaways. And maybe they're not super practical, but he wants us to give, he wants to give us these things to hold on to. Okay, things that we can carry with us after we're out of this book. He talked about how you got to live in light of your death. Okay, you got to live backwards. That was last week. This week, what he wants to focus on is very simple. Don't be foolish. If there's one thing in life, one rule to remember, if there's something that you should think about every morning before you get out of bed, it's don't be foolish today. Don't choose folly. The preacher wants to distill his message down to these words. Don't be foolish because it could seriously ruin your life. So we're going to look at this section, this passage in three parts. First, the potential of wisdom. Okay. Second, the pitfall of folly. And then third, the power of knowing the difference. Okay. So we'll get into these one at a time. First, the potential of wisdom. The potential of wisdom. You can't understand how bad folly is unless you kind of know what you're missing. Okay, folly and wisdom are opposites. So he's starting with wisdom and what you could potentially lose out on. Verse 13. He says, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Okay, so first of all, he starts with an illustration. Uh, This is wisdom under the sun. Uh, That is wisdom in this fallen world, a diamond in the rough. And whatever he's seen, it's made a big impression on him. That's why he says, it seemed great to me. This story stuck with him. Now, what what did he see? Verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king, a great king excuse me, came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. So there's this little city. There's a contrast. A little city with just a few soldiers and a great king who apparently has this huge army 
And we talked about how might makes right in this world, whether we like it or not. And when a great army arises against a little city and builds great siege works around it, basically surrounding you with destruction, you're, you're done. Okay, that's the end of your life. You're going to be a slave or you're going to be killed. But verse 15, this is what he saw. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. A twist. There's just a poor wise man in the city, but he delivers the city with his wisdom. How? The preacher doesn't say. We don't know his plans or what he came up with. What matters to the preacher isn't how he did it, but that he did it. Okay, what stood out to him was the potential of wisdom. Wisdom can be more powerful than weapons of war even, it says in verse 18. But then there's another twist. Go back to verse 15. I didn't read the whole thing. Remember how he wasn't just a wise man, but a poor wise man. Look at the text. Yet no one remembered that poor man. He delivers a whole city. Everyone's crying and screaming and, and, and preparing for death. And this poor wise man delivers everybody by his wisdom. And yet no one remembers that poor man. One, he's still known as just being that poor guy. And then second, even then, he's forgotten. You know, it reminds me of Jean Valjean. You know, Les Mis, someone was talking to me about it recently, and it's been in my mind. But Jean Valjean, he spent 19 years, okay, 19 years in prison, okay, as a criminal, uh, because he stole a loaf of bread, okay? And his experience in prison becomes his identity. He becomes this convict, hardened, bitter. But then he meets this kind bishop who, who takes him in, and he shows him grace and compassion, and this changes his life. I'm not going to spoil it for you, even though it's like 200 years old. Um, but he shows him grace, and it changes him. He becomes a different person. He turns his life around, and he becomes this kind person, this person who shares with others, someone who is generous. He takes on a new name. He becomes successful in business. His reputation is totally different. And yet, those who knew him before, namely a police inspector named Javert, who was a guard at the prison that he was in, can only see him as a prisoner. He doesn't even care about his name. He just knows his prisoner number. And some of you guys know what this is like, right? I know some of us, maybe we grew up in the church and maybe outwardly, it doesn't really look like we've changed that much in life. But others of us, we had kind of a crazy background. No one thought we would ever be in a church or, or uh, singing songs about God or sitting under a sermon because we lived like hell, so to speak. But then God changed your life. And now everyone knows you as that godly man or that godly woman. But you kind of don't want to go back to your hometown because everyone knows you as that guy or that girl. It's like you can't, you can't shake your reputation. And I know for some of us, this idea just makes us want to give up. That's why we never want to go back home. It's because it's like, what's the point? What's the point of me changing if no one recognizes it? What's the point of me turning my life around if it's not appreciated by anybody? And if this isn't vanity, I don't know what is. You make all these changes and it doesn't matter. If saving a city, saving people's lives, and then no one cares about you or remembers afterwards, if that's not vanity, I don't know what is. And yet notice the text. In a book where the word vanity or hevel is repeated almost 40 times, the preacher does not use that word one time in this section. The word hevel does not appear. He doesn't say, and I saw this, and this too turned out to be vanity. No, verse 16. This is what he says. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Even though he is despised, his words are not heard, it's still better. Wisdom is valuable. Now, keep reading and we'll come back to this. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better, there's that word again, than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What he's saying is that the words of the wise, even if they aren't heard by a lot of people, even if there's not a lot of reach or influence, they're still more valuable. They're still better than the shouts, the loud words of a ruler among fools. It's not about popularity. It's not about influence. It's not about the effect. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Again, what did you notice? There's that word again, better. Now, the word in Hebrew is the word tova. Okay, that's what the word better is. It's derivative of the Hebrew word tov, which means good. 
Now, tov can be translated as merry, M-E-R-R-Y, or pleasant, or usable, or efficient, or friendly, or moral. But if you stack all those words together, basically what it means is good. In whatever context, it could be an ethic context, uh, with ethics and morals, like morally good. It could be in terms of efficiency. It's just good. And this is the word we see at the end of verse 18. One sinner, a single person, can destroy much good. So what's going on here? He tells us this little story, gives us a few proverbs. The preacher realized from this example that there's a certain kind of value to living wisely. There's a certain value. It might not lead to lasting recognition. It might not lead to the applause of the crowds. It might not give you power or money or a legacy. But at the end of the day, it's good. It's good. And if you've been paying attention to the scripture, this is huge. Because when God created man, he placed him in a garden called Eden along with his wife, east of Eden. This was the cherry on the top of the proverbial cake. Okay, God had created this world in six days. And each day after he created the light and the sun and the oceans and the mountains and the animals, and finally us, the creatures that were crafted in his image, Every single day after he made the things that he made on that day, what did God say? Everything was good. This is how it was designed to be. This is how it was supposed to be. And this is what we lost because of our sin. We lost that goodness. But in the beginning, every single day, morning and evening, it was good. It was tov. Same word in the Hebrew. Goodness is what was lost in the fall when humanity was cast out of Eden to the east. Goodness is what was lost when sin entered the human heart to dwell and when death cast its shadow over everything under the sun. And yet, what is the preacher saying here? He's already said that life is really hard, east of Eden. He's already said that death comes for all of us eventually, east of Eden. He's already said that a lot of things in life that we put all of our stock into ultimately will leave us empty, east of Eden. But here in chapter 9, what does he say? He saw something that was amazing to him, that wisdom that wisdom can still lead to good. We can't go back to Eden, but wisdom in some way is a path toward that which was lost in Eden, which is goodness. See, even in the vanity of life, the hevel of life, we're here today and gone tomorrow, where the race isn't to the swift, where you can save all of your friends and family and neighbors and no one thanks you or cares in the end. Wisdom can still bring about something good. It's an objectively good thing that people's lives are saved in this example, even if no one remembers it. You know, I know some of us have been having trouble with Ecclesiastes. We get it in theory, right? Like I shouldn't be living for work or, or I know that I can't put all my eggs in the basket of just feeling good. I need to kind of just pull back from always living for the next vacation or whatever it might be. We know in our heads that, okay, a newer, nicer house isn't going to make us happy, but it's still hard for us to kind of on the ground live that out, right? We don't know how to live for more or to enjoy the little things in life. You got to understand what Solomon is saying. The potential for wisdom is good. The potential of wisdom is for good. See, if you can just be wise, not saying it's easy, by the way, but if you can just be wise, you can reach goodness in your life. See, wisdom isn't necessarily going to make you rich or popular or feel good even, but it can lead to good in your life. See, we need to change what we're aiming for. Some of us, we feel like if it doesn't feel good, then it's not good. I think this is a big thing. This is why I keep talking about it. So for example, I mean, I don't know if you, you uh, if you're my age, uh, I know a lot of people who kind of, grew up in, you know, this generation, uh, we saw like Steve Jobs and, and the things that he would say. And I remember there was this uh, commencement speech uh, that he, where he spoke at Stanford and it was being passed around. It was like viral. And he was basically talking about how life is short, which I agree with, but he was saying, what you got to do is you got to find something that you're passionate about to work for, right? The most important thing when it comes to a career is find your passion and pursue it. And an entire generation went that way. And then all of us got disillusioned because 
a lot of times we thought passionate would mean that I love that thing. I enjoy it. I, 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 it doesn't feel like work. I wake up in the morning excited. There's not a single job on earth where you never, ever don't want to go in. You know what I mean? Even professional athletes sometimes want to take like mental health days and stuff like, cause it's hard. Work is toil under the sun. See, what happens is we feel like, okay, if it doesn't feel good, then it can't be right. If I'm not passionate about it, then I must be in the wrong career. Ecclesiastes is not saying that you have to hate your job, but it's also saying that you got to understand that work is work. In fact, work east of Eden is toil. You can learn to find joy in any circumstance, but that doesn't mean that all circumstances are going to be in of themselves enjoyable. What if work is more than just about how I feel about it? And Solomon says, if you can see this, this is what's great. This is what's amazing. Wisdom is about learning this. See, the question isn't what makes me feel good. The question is, can good come out of this? Can I be a witness to my faith at work? Let's say you didn't enjoy your eight-hour shift, but you were able to talk to your coworker about the gospel during lunch and they became a Christian. Would you say that your job is vanity? Can good come out of this? Can I work hard as unto the Lord, even if no human being recognizes me my entire career? Can I learn discipline and self-control and learn to be a more patient and long-suffering person because of my job? These are all good things. This can be fruit in your life. For some people, it's not work, it's family. It's not uncommon in our society, even in the church, for families to split, for husbands and wives, too, to walk out on each other. I've seen it happen many times already among my peers even. Um, now, I'm not talking about, you know, cases of serious abuse or adultery. I think that, that uh, those are exceptions. Um, but I'm just talking about people I've known who just got tired of being married. I just didn't want to do it anymore. It's not what I thought it was. I fell out of love. And, and whenever you talk to them about it, it always comes down to this variation of I wasn't feeling it anymore. It, it shouldn't be this hard, right? If it's this hard, then it can't be right. That's not wisdom. See, one sinner can destroy much good. I mean, how do you think your kids will feel? And again, I'm talking about the people who just want to walk away because they're not feeling it. How do you think your kids will feel uh, when you tell them, like, look, okay, the reason why I don't really want to live with you or see you that much anymore is because I just wasn't feeling you, okay? Like, you just don't make me feel that happy, and I just want to get out in the dating pool and find some people that I like more. See ya. It's not about what feels good, and hear me, I'm not saying it's wrong to want to feel good, okay? I'm not saying that that's bad in of itself. I'm just saying it's not enough. It's not about what feels good. It's about what is good. And that's what wisdom allows us to tap into. It's something deeper. Wisdom is the thing that can allow you to save people's lives, even if people don't recognize it. It can still be good. Wisdom allows us to live for others instead of ourselves. It allows us to be a success in the Lord's eyes, even if we're not in the world's. It allows us to not give up on things just because we're not seeing the results we think we're supposed to. It, it allows us to enjoy the moment, no matter what the circumstances are, because we can still live for God. See, wisdom can bring about, wisdom has the potential to bring about good in a fallen world east of Eden. And to Solomon, that's an amazing thing. And this leads to the second point. This is the setup, but here's the problem. The pitfall of folly. Okay, so you might be thinking, okay, easy. I'll just be wise. It's not really an easy thing to do necessarily. In fact, what's easier for us to do is just be foolish. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, this is not the contrast that you might be expecting. Okay, he's talking about wisdom. And you might think he's going to talk about foolishness right away, but he says, a sinner, not a fool, but a sinner destroys much good. And the reason is sin and folly are connected more than you think. In fact, James 4, 17 says, so, who, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, there's a connection between knowing the truth and not living for it and just being a fool. Right here in verse 18, wisdom is contrasted with sin. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. You can win a battle with wisdom alone, and yet a single sinful fool can blow up everything you worked for. And chapter 10 starts to expound on this idea. Look at verse 1. 
Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, so wisdom has so much potential for good, but just a little bit of folly can outweigh it. And then he adds in this word honor. Do you see that? Outweighs wisdom and honor. And the word for honor here is actually the Hebrew word kavod. And we've talked about this way back in the day, but kavod is the word usually translated glory in Hebrew. Okay, now when you think about glory, maybe you think about like a bright light or something like that. That's part of glory. But the word kavod, really what it has to do with is weight okay, or substance. See, hevel is vanity. It's things that are here and then they're gone. It's a soap bubble that pops. It's vapor that vanishes. But kavod, glory, things of substance, honor, they're things that have real weight, things that last, things that are permanent. But what is the preacher saying here? A little folly, like some dead rotting flies and a bottle of perfume, a tiny bit of folly can outweigh even kavod. It can ruin everything. And I think we understand the picture here. In fact, something like this just happened to me. I got a cup out of the cupboard, as I do, and I was pouring something into it. I think I was pouring like orange juice or something. So it wasn't just water. And I wasn't looking and I poured it in and then I was about to drink And then right on the top was this little bug. It was like a silverfish because it was in the cup and it just floated up to the top. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I can't waste this orange juice. You just scoop it off. But for me, I was like, you know what? I'm good, right? I can work some overtime or get a second job and I could pay for this orange juice. I don't want to drink it. It was so unappetizing to me. And I know every single person here, even if that's not your limit, you have a limit, right? There's like an eyeball in there. You're not going to drink it. Come on. A little bit can ruin it. By volume, the bug is really small compared to all the orange juice, but, you know, the eyeball is really small. Keep reading. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Some of us are already thinking political here. See, wisdom is right and folly is left. That's not necessarily the case here, but in ancient times, right and left did have different connotations. To sit at the king's right hand was the place of honor. And if you were left-handed, everyone viewed you with some suspicion because it was so rare. I don't know if anyone's left-handed here. You want to show yourself? Now I know who to not trust. No, I'm just kidding. I was, there's no, there's no, there's nothing to that at all. Um, but the point the preacher is getting at here is actually just a contrast or opposites. Wisdom and folly go two separate ways. He might as well be saying wisdom and folly go east and west. To choose folly is to go in the exact opposite direction of wisdom. And he carries on with this idea in verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Okay, so he's talking about kind of going, you know, one way or the other. But he says when the fool starts walking, they can't help but reveal themselves. It's kind of like what... Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The fool telegraphs just by what he talks about, how he talks, that he is a fool just by going along in his life. And then verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Calmness can diffuse a tense situation. A gentle answer can turn away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. But notice the preacher says, do not leave your place. And this is how it fits into everything he's saying about folly. Don't do what your first instinct is to do, which is to run away. See, there's a connection between what your flesh naturally wants to do and what the foolish thing is. We're not naturally wise. We have to learn wisdom. We are naturally foolish. And when you have eyes to see, you'll see how rare wisdom is in this world. Verse 5, there is an evil There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Okay, what he's saying here is, I've seen a lot of foolishness in my day. Even rulers, even people who you would hope would be smarter or more competent than me, make foolish errors. He says the most competent are not always in charge, and the rich, by contrast, sometimes sit in a low place. Okay, now the Bible has a nuanced relationship with riches. Okay, rich people are not always the best people. But here, the the context or, or kind of the idea that he's getting at has to do more with competency, those who deserve success, in other words. It's why you can translate the word rich here as those who are honorable, okay, or noble, 
The idea is some people, he's seen some people who are, who have all the tools, right? They're like a five tool person. They have all the talent in the world and they work hard. And yet for some reason, they're toiling away in the minor leagues forever. And then you have people who aren't qualified, who for whatever reason, make it to the top and they just cause havoc. He says, you have slaves riding horses, implying a sort of military thing, military leadership, and not princes. And here, I think if we're looking at it too literally, in kind of our English way of looking at it, we're going to misunderstand what he's saying. But what he's saying here, especially in just reading it in the original, is just seeing things backwards. He's saying he's seen men who are military general material, okay, who should be leaders, who should be riding horses and in charge, and yet they're just walking alongside doing menial tasks. And then you have people who are just not qualified at all who are riding the horse. And the point is, folly is everywhere from the bottom to the top. Things in this world are generally foolish. And here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. It's the Gatorade question. Folly is everywhere, but is it in you? You know, I was thinking about something that I did one time. I was at this fast food restaurant, Carl's Jr. or Hardee's, depending on where you're from in America. And I was waiting in line to order my, you know, whatever, fries. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to eat, but uh, someone came in the door of the restaurant, I remember. And they said, hey, someone's car is like rolling around the parking lot. And I remember thinking, what kind of fool? I was 16 then. I just got my license. But I was thinking, what kind of fool would park his car not put his car in park and then come into Carl's Jr. to order his burger like nothing happened. And then I looked outside and guess what? This kind of fool, well, cause it was my car. So what happened was, uh, what happened was I had had the car in drive and then I had put it up into park, but I didn't put it up all the way. So it went into R reverse and it is just rolled backward. And I don't even, I don't know how I got out of the car or what. Um, and thankfully there wasn't a car behind. So it kind of was just like rolling in the parking lot, didn't hit anyone. And I remember thinking, man, this is so embarrassing. Should I go? But I'm so hungry, right? So should I go back inside and order my burger or not? So I actually went back inside. Everyone's looking at me, but I was like, you know what? This is part of being a man. Okay, I just got to take it. But the truth is foolishness is all around us and it's in us as well. Okay, I know it's in me. I'm sharing this with you. This is probably the only thing you're going to remember. The main form though that foolishness takes, and hear me with this, If we had to get down to the essence of it, if you want the takeaway, it's that foolishness is basically not taking into account the repercussions of your actions. Foolishness is not taking into account the repercussions of your actions. And this can manifest in different ways. But I think the main thing is, you know what you're supposed to do, and you don't do it. You know, I need to do this in order to have this happen. I need to spend time with my kids if I want to have a good relationship with them. But then we just don't do it. I know I need to read the Bible if I am going to grow in my faith. I just don't do it. And the foolishness is we just act like that's not the case. We know it, but then we act as if our actions don't have any repercussions. And then we wonder a few months later, how come I'm so spiritually dry? Maybe it's because you haven't read the Bible in four years. You know, some of you might be thinking, Pastor, I thought nothing ultimately matters. God is in control. Who cares? No big deal. Just enjoy life for God has already approved what we do. That is true in a sense. And we shouldn't live with regret. This isn't about changing the past. You can't change the past. That is another form of the same foolishness, right? That is knowing you can't change the past, but still thinking about it anyway. What this is about is about seizing the present and making good decisions right now. It's about choosing to live with the knowledge that what my actions are today will lead to something tomorrow, most likely. It's foolish to think that the rules of creation don't apply to me, to you, to us. It's foolish to think that you can do whatever you want and not face the consequences. I know all these other people, right? They they started talking to uh, that woman at work and they got a little too close and they had an affair. But for me, I already know it's not, I, I'll just be careful. I'm more careful than them. I'll just talk to them, go out to lunch every single day. Tale as old as time. You think you're the exception, but really you're just proving the rule by not being so. Look at verse eight. He who digs a pit will fall into it 
and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Okay, now these are some things where you're like, what is he even talking about? What he's saying here is, is almost so simple that you can't even understand it. He says, if you dig a hole, you can easily fall in. Okay, if you dig a hole, you can fall in. And then with about a wall, he's talking about a wall kind of that they would build in those days out of kind of unhewn cobbled stone. They would cobble these stones together. And it was common for animals to like live in the crevices, right? Because they weren't like actually fitted together completely. There would be snakes and such. So you can't just like start reaching your hand into the wall, taking it apart without thinking that you might get bit by a snake or something. And then verse nine, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits log is in, splits logs, excuse me, is endangered by them. There is danger in quarrying stones and in splitting logs. It's a hazardous line of work by nature. So he's kind of getting at these really simple things, but he's like, you know, you know, on one level, what should be done. And yet, why are you living totally different? Right? Like you should know this, right? Like if you dig a hole, you might fall in. Right? You, you dig the biggest hole at the beach, you might fall into that. If you reach your hand into like a dark hole where snakes live, you might get bit by a snake. If you're someone who works in quarrying stones, it's a dangerous job. If you're splitting logs with an axe, you might get injured. That's just how it is. It's foolish to think that you couldn't get hurt, that you're not in danger, that somehow you're the kind of person who's immune to falling into holes. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln once said, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. There is some practical wisdom to that. A sharp axe does the work in exponentially less time. This is known information. If the iron is blunt, you need to use way more brute strength. You'll be way more tired. Wisdom will help you do even simple tasks like this. And yet, why does he say stuff like this? It's because you got a lot of people out there who just are, I don't know what you chopping away with their blunt axe, thinking that, okay, I don't need to sharpen it. I think it's fine. In fact, I was doing something similar to this. I was sawing down this like little tree with the bluntest saw of all time. Man, I have to like take a shower after because it took so much effort. But anyway, the point of all, I mean, I'm the same guy who left my car in reverse. So the point of all of this comes to a head in verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The ultimate foolishness is knowing what to do and not doing it. So what if you're the greatest... So what if you're the greatest snake charmer of all time? If you don't actually charm the snake, okay, you're just going to get bit. Foolishness folly is not taking into account how things work in this world. It's making reckless decisions. It's assuming that cause won't lead to effect. It's thinking that you are the exception, that the rules don't apply to you, that you don't need to sharpen the axe. And this kind of foolishness is not easy to see in ourselves sometimes. I mean, think about the last time that you were talking to yourself about something, your unhappiness, let's say. Maybe you really wanted to get a new car, right? And you're like, man, I've been researching new cars and I've seen this one. And if I got this car, even say stuff like this to yourself or to your spouse. If I got this car, oh man, I think I'd be happy forever, right? Like I never need another car. I mean, you could drive this car for 30 years if you take care of it, right? I'm pretty handy. I got it. And then you buy the car and then just a few months later, you're complaining about something else because it's just a car. We do this with houses. We do this with meals. We oftentimes fail to see this kind of stuff in ourselves. We know that we all have the same 24 hours in the day. We know we're barely hanging on and then we make three more commitments. We know that solid relationships take work. They take time. We know this. We could tell someone. We could give them counsel. You have to go through ups and downs. Real strong relationships are forged in the fire. You need to go through conflict. You need to work through that. You need to deal with trials together. You have to make it through. But then, even though we know that, a lot of us, the second adversity shows up in any kind of relationship, we're out of here. Right? Like maybe, you know, we grew up... uh with a bunch of friends, right? And we don't remember all the times that we fought and that we weren't talking with each other and, you know, you threw the game, Game Boy controller away or something because we were so angry. But after all those years of fighting and hanging out and going through stuff together, you have an unbreakable friendship. 
But then we're adults now and we show up at, at wherever, right? We show up at college or we get to a new city or we go into a new church and we expect it to be easy right away. And the second someone isn't the way that we want them to be or someone kind of takes what we said the wrong way or we have a little conflict with someone, we're like, this can't be right. I got to get out of here. These people are messed up. You can't skip the blood, sweat, and tears that all lifelong relationships require. You can't skip the process. It takes years. And that's how it works. This is how Proverbs and Ecclesiastes intersect. Ecclesiastes seems so different. It's not really that different. What Proverbs is saying is, just read it. It'll tell you that relationships are difficult and take time. It'll talk to you about marriage. It'll talk to you about money and all the practical things that we deal with in this world. It'll give you the rules for life. See, it's foolishness to think that you can be a wise person without consulting the scripture. It's foolish to think that you can have a beautiful 50-year marriage without the sacrifice required. It's foolishness to think that you can charm the snake just by showing up. You got to charm the snake. See, folly is a pit. And these bad decisions, even seemingly little decisions, they can add up or even just one can ruin your life. Making an impulsive decision to get married, for instance, I've seen so many terrible marriages. Why couldn't you just wait to do premarital counseling? Why couldn't you just get to know them a little bit more first? Why did you assume that the red flags would just disappear the second you said, I do? And now you're committed and, you know, God can work in it. Don't get me wrong. He will work in it. But you brought a lot of pain and suffering into your life by not recognizing the commitment that you were making. See, wisdom helps you in this life. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. The potential for hurt is there. You need to recognize it. See, we need to make these drastic decisions. Uh, uh, we, uh, excuse me, we need to make these drastic decisions and we need to think about the consequences. Uprooting your whole life or leaving your family for a fling at work or quitting your job because you saw a get-rich scheme on YouTube. It's just foolish to think that you are going to be the exception. And not all these things are necessarily bad. It doesn't even have to be this severe too. It can be a daily decision to do something bad for your health or your spiritual health. It could be just like, I can't pray today. It could be, Just one more drink every day. It's not going to affect me that much. These things add up. Every choice leads somewhere. And folly can ruin your life. Okay, so bring a big picture together. You have one life to live. It's a gift from God. Okay, now we're all going to die. Okay, there are bigger things, more important things than your life. But if your life is a gift and you want to live it to the fullest, if you want to enjoy it the way that God intended for you and is calling you to enjoy it, if you want to make the most of it and not squander it or spit on it, then it's the little choices that you make out of wisdom that lead you toward a good life. Or it's the little choices that you make out of foolishness that make you fall into a pit. And this leads to the last point, the power of knowing the difference. See, wisdom is good. Folly is bad. We get it. No one sets out to be a fool. Okay, I never heard someone say, my goal is to have the worst life of all time, to be a fool. Everyone's going to laugh at me. No one says that. We've seen people, right? Celebrities. We've seen family, friends. You've seen pastors who ruin their lives, blow up their lives in these ways where we're like, how could they even let it get that far? Why does this happen? Well, for a lot of reasons. It is complex. But I think the main reason is, especially among those who know better, is because it's hard to really see what path you're on in real time. It's hard to know the difference in the moment between wisdom and folly. And this is where the preacher goes as he ends chapter 10, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. These next few verses focus on words, uh, what we say, and this is key. If you want to start living well, pay attention to how you talk. Listen to how you talk. It's not easy to to listen to how you talk. Maybe you never did this before, but pay attention to the words that you think, your self talk. Pay attention to how you talk about other people. Pay attention to how you talk uh, to your friends and, and to your coworkers. What kind of things do you say off the cuff? What do you say when you're mad? What do you say when you're feeling down? 
The words of a wise man win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. In other words, a wise man speaks in a way that leads to good results. A fool is ultimately destroyed by his words. Now, again, going back to point one, it doesn't mean that wise people are loved by everybody or that everyone appreciates them. It means that a wise person has a good effect on people with his words, whether it's for encouragement or building up or saving them from an army. A fool is undone completely by his words. See, our words are the best indicator we have of what's going on in our hearts. We preach First Samuel, right? Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We can't see really into the heart, even our own hearts. It's not easy for us. The one way we can kind of get a, a pulse, pun intended, of how our hearts are going is by looking at the heart because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Looking at our words, excuse me. So the thing is, if we want to know if there's wisdom or foolishness going on, listen to how you talk. Pay attention to yourself. And the preacher expands on this, verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. A fool will speak foolishness. Seems so obvious, but a fool talks a lot about things he he has no idea about. The preacher has already said, we can't know the future. It's impossible to know what will happen. And yet, The fool constantly talks about the plans that he is making and how this is going to lead to that. And, you know, once he buys uh, this, uh, whatever, cryptocurrency, he's going to be a millionaire next year. He's going to donate it to your church. The fool talks like he's God, like he's in control of all of the results. So listen to how you talk. Are you someone who betrays your own foolishness by the words that you speak? This is something to pay attention to. Are you someone who's always talking about things that you don't really know a lot about? Are you someone who asks, why were the former days better than these? The preacher has already said, it's not from wisdom that you ask this. I mean, do your words ask up, uh, add up? He's talking about how uh, the end of his talk is evil madness. I know people who just get on this thing. They're just talking about all these things and uh, nothing they say actually makes sense in real life. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The fool gives up easily and doesn't go anywhere. This is a hard thing to hear, and I understand this. But some of us, we're not making progress in life. And I don't mean getting promotions. I don't mean progressing in the eyes of the world. I'm saying we're not getting anywhere as followers of Jesus. We're not actually doing anything that's good to go back to the first point. Maybe we've said, we've talked a lot about what we're going to do. This is the year. I'm really going to start getting serious about my relationships. I'm going to call some of my brothers and check in on them, and we're going to fellowship, and I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to get out of my own head and out of my own life a little bit, but it's January, whatever, 14. I don't know what the date is, but still haven't called anybody, even though that was your New Year's resolution. We said we're going to start serving more because I need to give, right? I can't just be a consumer. I need to give, and yet you still have that application uh gathering dust on the shelf somewhere. We said we're going to start growing spiritually. I'm going to read these books, uh, but you still haven't even cracked open your Bible because the toil of having to actually open it up and have your eyes scan the page wearies you. We said, this is the time I'm finally going to make a change. Either you're doing it or you're not. Don't be foolish. The fool might want to get to the city, but he's never willing to do what it takes. The question is, are you all talk at the end of the day? So pay attention to your words. That's the first thing. Pay attention to your words. And maybe you need to ask someone about this. And this can be hard. I think this might be the number one way to figure it out. If you ask people, okay, ask a trusted brother or sister or your spouse, be real with me. Am I kind of foolish? If they're scared to tell you or they feel like there's no point in telling you, then that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign. The way this passage ends, okay, besides just telling you to pay attention to your words, is by tying it all together. The paradox of Ecclesiastes is that in the big picture, what you do doesn't actually matter that much. In the big scheme of the universe, we are just a tiny dot, even less than that. We are a vapor that is here today and gone today, like I said. But in the time that you are given, In the life that you have, 
you have great potential for good or for evil. While in the big scheme of things, God is in control, of course, we get that. God is sovereign. But in your life, if you want to know how to live your life well, you got to understand that God has given you the stewardship of your choices. So you're either going to grow or you're going to backslide. You're either going to be a blessing to those around you all the days of your life, or you're going to be a burden or even a curse. You're either going to be a wise person who tastes what God says and runs with it, or you're going to be a foolish person. And this leads to the end of the chapter. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. And this is one of those verses where you're like, what is he even talking about? It doesn't seem like it fits, but he's getting to his point. When things are done foolishly, it's bad for everybody. Woe to you, O land. Cursed are you, in other words. And by contrast, when things are done wisely, it's good for everybody. It's not about your legacy. It's not about your pleasure. It's about the joy that comes from what is intrinsically good and the blessing that it bestows on those around you. See, there's a kingdom where the king is immature. He's a baby. And he just lets people do whatever they want. And there's no order, no control. The leaders don't lead. And what happens is everyone suffers. And there's a kingdom where the king is noble and honorable. And people, they feast and it's fine to do so. But they do it for strength and not for drunkenness. They do it so that they could do what is required of them and not just because it feels good to them. And the results are woe versus happy. See, the thing is, right, you got to understand that this is not something that is in contradiction to the gospel. Some of us here, I think where our minds are going right now is, oh man, I've been a fool my whole life and I don't know if I can fix it. I've been doing all these things. I don't have that much more time. Maybe you're in a marriage that's really hard. Or maybe you made a decision where you're still feeling the repercussions of it. And your mind is just spiraling into regret, wishing you could change the past. That's not the case. Okay, in the gospel, we know that even though we are sinners, even though we're not perfect, even though we have sinned against God and turned against him, even though we made a lot of bad decisions in life, that there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is redemption. For the Christian, because of the cross of Christ, there is the assurance that everything that happens to us will work out for good in the end. Okay, our eternal life is secure because of Jesus. If you believe in him, if you've given your life to him, this is grace on top of that. This is about not ruining your life, being able to enjoy your life, being able to rejoice in the things that God brings in the here and now today. See, the reason God gives us this is for you right now. It's not for him. He doesn't, he can work everything out for good, even if you mess up your life completely. But this is so that you can reap the fruit of a life wisely lived. You can have good family relations, okay, with your kids because you are investing into that. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that they'll become Christian. That's in God's hands. But you're, playing the rules according to the rule book that God has given you. You can have some enjoyment in relationships that are even hard because you know from the scripture that these are things that are growing your perseverance and growing your faith. And it's an opportunity for you to love someone that's hard for you. You can enjoy everything because of this and you could be a blessing to others. Because you might be thinking, pastor, I'm not a king. Well, apply the principle to your situation. Woe to you, O household, when your father is a child. Or your mother is a child. See, when the parent is immature, who lives impulsively, who doesn't set an example, who doesn't sacrifice to provide, the household is going to suffer. And God can forgive you of that, of course. But if you want to have a godly household filled with joy and warmth, then it starts with your maturity. That's where the blessing comes from. There's no, sad, there's no shortcut here. You got to sharpen the axe. And I preach to myself, woe to you, O church, when your pastor is a child. Thankfully, we got James, right? Being foolish will make joy in life very elusive for us and for others. Being wise means that the goodness of life is in your grasp. So practically speaking, we'll end this, this passage. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. If you're lazy and don't take care of your house, don't be surprised when the rain leaks in. He's saying you got to work hard. 
as part of sharpening the axe. Verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Imagine that being your life verse. You go into my house and it's like Ecclesiastes 10, 19 over the door. As for me and my house, money answers everything. But understand he's being incredibly realistic here. Okay, he's saying that you got to see things as they are. Food and drink were originally made by God to be enjoyed. God made them for laughter, for the gladdening of life. He's already said gluttonous indulgence is not the way. He's already established that. But he's saying you should enjoy the little things. And when he says money answers everything, okay, what he's saying is, uh, you gotta understand, well, you gotta understand this in light of the whole scripture, especially the Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 15 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Money makes a terrible master, right? An awful God. But money is what is required to provide, to be generous, to buy the things that you need for life. You gotta understand that money is something that you need to use wisely. You need to use it wisely. To mismanage money is to make your life unnecessarily hard for you and your loved ones. It's not about greed. It's about stewardship. He's being super practical. He's like, don't be lazy in the things that are important. He's saying, enjoy the little things. And then he's saying, be smart with your money. So many people's lives are hard because they have a poor grasp on their money. They're either slaves to it or they're irresponsible with it or both. The preacher couldn't be any more direct than this. Foolishness will ruin, uh, foolishness with money will ruin your life. And then lastly, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Don't say, don't even think dumb things, okay, about other people, about your boss, about the king, because it'll get to them. And the point isn't as on the nose as maybe you think. Okay, I mean, look at it. It says, don't curse the king because a little bird will tell him your thoughts. Probably not going to happen in reality. Last time I checked, birds cannot read your mind. What he's saying is your actions, even your thoughts, even the ones that you don't think anyone else knows, your actions, how you live, have consequences. And this is how he ends it. If you want to live a wise life from here on out, Take action in light of what you know and in light of what the scripture says the consequences will be for those actions. We'll close with this. Going back to Jeff and David in the nuclear missile silo in Damascus, Arkansas. Long story short, the fuel leakage was a major emergency, obviously, and the alarms were going off and they had to evacuate people out of there. The fuel was not the nuclear warhead. Okay, It was... The fuel was in the rocket and the warhead was on top, like in the rocket, but the the rocket is taking the nuclear warhead to wherever we want it to go. The problem was if the fuel exploded, the warhead might easily be triggered to also explode. Okay, so this is like super urgent, very scary. And basically if the fuel explodes and the warhead explodes, uh, a nuclear missile is going to blow up. In Arkansas. Okay, Greg might not even be here. I don't know what would have happened to Greg. Uh, they said the fallout would probably blow all the way to like Chicago. That's how bad it would have been. So the alarm sounded. They're evacuating everybody. And they sent in just a couple workers to try to fix the situation if they could. And one of them was a man named David Livingston. So David Livingston was actually David Powell's best friend and roommate. Same, they're both, they both named David. And David and the other guy that he went in with, they made it right near the rocket. And right when they got inside, the command center radioed them, it's going to blow, you got to get out. And they started trying to run out of there, and 30 seconds later, it blew. So the fuel exploded. Communication went down, the U.S. military was monitoring the situation, everything went dead. Everyone at Little Rock Air Force Base, which was like the closest major military installation, braced themselves expecting a nuclear explosion like within like two seconds. But, I mean, spoiler alert, and Greg is still here, so you know, the warhead just blew off, but it didn't explode. So if you were there outside Damascus, you saw the worst explosion you ever saw in your life. They said it was nighttime by that point, but it was like day, because all, uh, all the fuel just ignited everywhere, but the warhead didn't detonate. What could have been one of the worst disasters in U.S. history didn't happen. See, big picture, things worked out okay. 
And I think you got to understand this. There is, there is hope for you in your life. That big picture, things will work out okay for every Christian. Okay? God has you. Okay, his plan is sovereign and you can rest in that. But what happened with this disaster is David Powell, the guy who dropped the ratchet, who caused the accident, his little mistake, his own laziness of not wanting to go back down and get the right tool, it caused his best friend, David Livingston, to lose his life. He was the one casualty of this disaster. And I don't mean to scare you, but I don't want you to think that, okay, because God is sovereign and he's working everything out for good, it doesn't matter what I do. It does matter what you do. It matters for the people around you, the people that you say that you love, the people that you care for, the people that God has placed in your life, and it matters for you. Some of us have such miserable lives before heaven. That's not how it's supposed to be. We have a relationship with God right now. We have his word, which teaches us the correct and wise path. So maybe you need to make the decision to pursue wisdom to put away foolishness, to to tap into the power of knowing the difference, to stop living for just what feels good or what's immediately satisfying or what seems right to you and to seek the Lord. Some of us, we've got to put away that laziness. We've got to stop talking about how we're going to do it tomorrow. Some of us, we've got to start reckoning with the reality of our situation, whatever it might be. What the preacher wants us to take away from Ecclesiastes before he closes is don't be foolish. It's for you because foolishness could seriously ruin your life. Let's pray on that end. God, we pray that you would help us to avoid foolishness. God, we want to be properly sober when it comes to folly and wisdom. And yet at the same time, God, we have hope in you. God, we know that you work all things out for good. We know that you're Your plan is greater than our foolishness, that our foolishness cannot ultimately thwart what you are doing. So help us to balance these things in our lives, God. I pray, God, that you would help us, even today, God, to make better decisions, God, for our joy, for the good of those around us, and ultimately for your glory. We place it in Christ's name. Amen.